You are listening to episode 38 of the Unnecessary Nonsense Podcast. The podcast generally of two unqualified idiots rambling on sports topics they likely know nothing about. Basically, this time it's one person rambling on stuff they likely know nothing about. Unspecified format, yada, yada, yada. It's 2020. We're not doing the whole spiel. I'm Carlos Alcazar, and not with me is Dave Turnbull. I'm doing a bit of a solo pod this week. Normally, by this point, uh, Dave and I have been able to kind of touch base, and we came up, come up with a recording schedule, and it didn't really happen this week. Uh, he's missing in action as far as I know. He might be out drifting at sea. He might be dead in a ditch. We'll find Dave. We'll send a search party. It'll be all right. He'll be back probably sooner rather than later. But in the meantime, I still wanted to get in a little bit of a podcast episode because there's a couple of things we got to talk about. We're down to the final four in the NFL. And there are a lot of stories that I think we can talk about as far as that's concerned. But there are a couple that I want to talk about. And I also specifically want to give a little bit of context, uh, especially for the NFC championship. But I'll get to that in a minute. Let me begin by looking at where we're at. And as I thought about it, and I've had basically the whole week. Last week, I went two and two in my predictions, largely because I basically went with my head specifically. There's no way that I really, I'm not really alone in the sense that I, that I believed that Baltimore should have beaten Tennessee. And yet here we are, which is fine. That's okay. That, that stuff like that happens. It is the playoffs. It's a one game playoff and things like that can occur. Obviously, I picked against Green Bay, my team, because I looked at them and I said to myself the thing I'd been saying all season. I've watched the Packers play games this year. And I said, I don't know how they're doing it. It's smoke and mirrors. There are things that they're managing to put together. Their Things are just falling into place just well enough. I can't say they're all falling into place, but they're falling into place well enough, often enough, where here we are. But the 2019-2020 Green Bay Packers are the most fraudulent 13-3 and team possibly of all time. And I can't complain about it because the result was a buy, which was advantageous. And the end result was they were able to play a Seattle team that was perfectly primed for them to be able to score just enough. Scoring 28 points was just enough with a couple of plays in there to hold off Russell Wilson and to be able to keep them with the the story, with the history between Seattle and Green Bay being what it was. Just another weird game, but the result was Green Bay managed to advance. And here, now they get to play San Francisco. I want to talk a little bit more about the NFC Championship here in a minute, but the point was, getting us to where we are and kind of the way that everything played out with Baltimore falling, with uh, New England dropping early again to Tennessee, and kind of the Cinderella run that Tennessee's had, and all the different things that have happened in this playoff, it brings me back to thinking about, of all things, and and I'm taking advantage of this because it's rare when you actually get to throw something like this in there in proper context. It got me to thinking, of all things, professional wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper, because there is one little quote that he said that I feel like actually applies here very nicely. And when it comes to this year's playoff, I've got to say, just when they think they have all the answers, I change the questions. But in this case, it's not I, as in, you know, Rowdy Roddy Piper changing the questions. Every time we thought we had the answers, the NFL itself changed the questions. And this happened, this has been happening throughout the whole playoff. We thought that Lamar Jackson, you know, running from a runaway NFL MVP season, he will still win the MVP. You thought that that was going to be enough against the Tennessee Titans to push them through. You thought you were going to get a Baltimore Ravens, Kansas City Chiefs AFC championship. That isn't what we have. We have the Kansas City Chiefs taking on the Tennessee Titans. And through the course of the week, I've 
sat back and I've listened and I've read and I've looked at all the, you know, the conversation and I've looked at all the discussion points and you can make the pitch. And this is an interesting situation because I like this final four in the sense that while I strongly believe that the favorites will take care of business, you know, spoiler, I'm going to pick Kansas City and I'm going to pick San Francisco. The truth is, though, just as much fun, if not more fun is making the case for Tennessee and or Green Bay, depending on you know which side of the coin you fall in. The truth is, I can make an argument for all four teams here. Making a case for the underdogs, which I'm going to do, is kind of fun too, because again, any combination of this, the way this NFL season has played out, every time we thought we had the answers, even looking at this now, we're down to the final four. You only have two more games here to select before we get to the Super Bowl. When you think you've got all the answers, the NFL changes the questions. So as far as this is concerned, let's make the case for Tennessee first. We'll talk about the AFC Championship, and then we'll look at the NFC in a second. Tennessee's case is this. Derrick Henry, Derrick Henry with a side of Derrick Henry. Can Ryan Tannehill, you know, contribute? Can he be efficient? Can he make the throws that are required to complement the running game that they've been able to establish? Can Derrick Henry maintain what has been a historic pace? They could. And if they do and control the clock and minimize the amount of possessions Kansas City has puts Kansas City in a position where they're on their heels and puts uh, Andy Reid in a position to be able to feel uncomfortable. Because at the end of the day, Andy Reid has enough playoff baggage at this point in his in his career as a, as a head coach that if things start to go wrong, he may freeze up. He may make mistakes. Even if he's in a position where it seems like he's going to win, all of a sudden it comes down to, can he manage the clock? Can he manage the game situation? Can he keep his focus? Can he do what needs to be done? Can he do what works for him in the regular season? Because as a coach in general, Andy Reid is great, but it always comes down to these decisions. As soon as we start to apply a little bit of pressure, suddenly the decisions get a little bit tougher. Suddenly choices are made that probably shouldn't have been made and wouldn't have been made in the light of day under normal conditions. And that's really what it comes down to. Some coaches are a little bit better versed at that than others. Fortunately for him, he's got a situation in Patrick Mahomes who has not developed the same kind of playoff baggage that he has. Really, it, it's about it's been about as successful a two year run for him as a young quarterback as I have as, you, as I can possibly imagine. Two AFC Championship appearances in two full seasons as a starter, that's phenomenal. And this team is great and has offensive weapons. Defensively, not so impressive. So that's really what it comes down to: Can you know Ryan Tannehill and Derrick Henry take advantage of a defense that isn't that great? They can. And the case for Tennessee is this. If they control the clock, if they're able to get that heavy dose of Derrick Henry, if they're able to keep Kansas City from exploding on them, then Tennessee can certainly win a slugfest if they make it physical enough. And that's really the type of game that I think will suit them against this type of matchup. Kansas City's road to success is a little bit simpler. If they start scoring early and often, get a lead, force Ryan Tannehill to have to throw, minimize Derrick Henry, then I think Kansas City is on its way to a Super Bowl. And I think they will be very comfortable getting to that Super Bowl you know, game. That's really the case between the two teams. It's kind of simple. The NFC side of it is kind of fun for me and it's kind of interesting, but it kind of follows the same script. You've got one team that is a prohibitive favorite. Realistically, they have more weapons. Realistically, they're a little bit better built. And the other team is kind of a surprise that they got there to that point. Some pundits and things will make arguments for Green Bay, but the reality, as I said, the 13-3 record is deceiving. They have done it in a very unusual way. 
It's been a fair bit of Aaron Jones. It has been Devontae Adams being excellent. Aaron Rodgers has made a little bit of throws, but there has been a lot of games where he's been fairly pedestrian. The reality is this Green Bay Packers team is going to have to either get completely out of character, Aaron Rodgers is going to have to catch fire, or they're going to have to find something they haven't had the entire year. The way I look at it uh, from a prediction standpoint, the reason I would say San Francisco is they're just better equipped with more horses to be able to do certain types of things and be able to play a couple of different types of games and styles. Green Bay is basically, if Aaron Jones goes off, well, great, that's going to help. If Devontae Adams, you know, makes acrobatic catches and really takes over, again, that'll help. And if Aaron Rodgers can find some of the old Aaron Rodgers when he was in his MVP heyday, well, then I like that. I like those opportunities. I like those chances. If that does not go, then the road for San Francisco is much simpler. Also, Green Bay's road to victory will probably require a couple of turnovers, likely from Jimmy Garoppolo, throwing a couple of interceptions. He always puts a couple of balls in harm's way. So it really comes down to, can you catch the ball if he puts it in harm's way with the opportunity to get an interception, to get a pick six, to get a fumble? If a turnover opportunity presents itself, can you take advantage of it? If Bay can take advantage of a few of those, then, you know, I like their chances a lot more. My concern with Green Bay is really just simply this. When I look at that offense, if Aaron Rodgers is not on his A game and he's able to make a couple of throws, but he's not on his A game, then I'm looking at San Francisco should probably just double Devontae Adams, just try to shut him down. And then, you know, try to minimize to the best of your ability. You don't have to stop him, but minimize a little bit of Aaron Jones's impact. Well, then at that point, what I'm looking at is I'm looking at a front four from San Francisco that can go and uh, put pressure on Aaron Rodgers, force him to try to throw the ball away early, not give him a lot of time. And the problem as far as time is concerned, if Devontae Adams is not an option, if I remove him from the equation because he's being double covered all the time, then what I'm looking at is who's the next guy? Who's the number two? Because I don't know the answer to that question. Valdez Scantling is a guy who could have been the number two, but it just hasn't materialized. So where do you look? Is it Jimmy Graham? I don't know. Is it Geronimo Allison? I don't know. Is it Lazard? I don't know. The, the point is there is no clear number two. There's a lot of potential, maybe for this game, this is the person. Maybe you throw a couple of balls to Aaron Jones just to mix it up a little bit. But the thing is, there's no obvious next game plan. And if you're looking at San Francisco, you have to be licking your chops because you know that if you can prevent Devontae Adams from beating you, then it gets really simple, and the Packer offense isn't exactly uh, vaunted. It's not the, it's not the old Packers, and it's not the, and it's certainly not the fifteen and one offensive juggernaut Packers that also lost in the playoffs. I'm thrilled that this team is in the NFC Championship, but the biggest story for me is just kind of how this fits into the overall legacy of Aaron Rodgers and this run of Green Bay. Bottom line, long story short. I think Kansas City can score enough points to get ahead of Tennessee to force them out of their game. If they do so, Kansas City should be at the Super Bowl. I expect San Francisco to be able to play an overall game. I think Jimmy G will throw a couple of balls in harm's way. I don't know if they'll be able to convert enough on that. Green Bay is going to have to score points if they want to, if they want to uh, you know, topple San Francisco. I don't know if that's the case. I would love to see that. You know, the Super Bowl one rematch, Kansas City and Green Bay. I think Kansas City would probably beat them in that, you know, if that was the matchup. But I'd still love to see it. But let's say, let's say it all plays out like that. Let's say Green Bay gets to the Super Bowl. It gets very interesting because I want to give you a little context. As a Packer fan, what's interesting to me, like I said, all of these matchups are interesting. 
any combination they're in sounds interesting to me. But what I'm looking at, really, and what I'm thinking about, honestly, what has transpired to take us to this point? And what I mean when I say that is I'm looking at it from the perspective of a, of a fan, of a Green Bay fan, who has been a fan since the mid-90s. And, you know, when Favre was kind of his peak, because a lot of my fandom for a lot of my teams is not because they were local to me. I'm nowhere near Wisconsin. And in hockey, you know, I cheered for the Dallas Stars for years. I cheered for the Dallas Stars because I was a fan of Mike Medano. And I cheered for the Green Bay Packers because I became a fan of Brett Favre. I loved his style. I loved the way he did his thing. And it was risky and it was painful. And at times it was frustrating because you'd see these flashes of brilliance followed by tremendously stupid interceptions. And that was always the frustration with the Brett Favre era. But it brings into context a very interesting thing, a unique anomaly that Green Bay has, but also kind of a frustratingly weird era. Because if you really want to break it down, that's why I said I wanted to start off by mentioning the games and also talking about you know predictions and all that. But as a, a wider context of the Green Bay thing, and something that I don't think is played up enough here, is that the question that really becomes with this NFC Championship is, what is the long-term legacy of the Aaron Rodgers era in Green Bay? You can't argue that it hasn't been somewhat successful because there have been playoff appearances. This will be the fourth appearance in the NFC Championship during his era, matching the fourth NFC Championship appearance of the Brett Favre era. But if he's able to get to the Super Bowl, and this is an if, a big if, but they're one game away, so I can't completely discount the possibility. But this is what makes this interesting. If he's able to get to the Super Bowl, that would be his second Super Bowl appearance. And even if then Kansas City or Tennessee or whoever, even if they lose in the Super Bowl, here's what the record would look like. Four NFC championships, two NFC championship wins, two Super Bowl appearances, one Super Bowl victory, one Super Bowl loss. Brett Favre went to four NFC championships, Won two of them, got to two Super Bowls, won a Super Bowl, lost a Super Bowl. It would be identical. And the crazy thing about that is the symmetry of kind of, and the varied way that the two of them got there. Like they couldn't be any more different in how they arrived at this destination. But what it leads to is this very strange and bizarre era of a, of a you know, historic franchise where that franchise was in the doldrums when Brett Favre got there. The Brett Favre era started in 1992. And I want to give you this little history lesson because, as I said, it's going to lead into the whole legacy question that I'm talking about earlier. The Brett Favre era started in 1992. And it resulted, as I said, in those NFC Championship appearances, those Super Bowl appearances, the Super Bowl win, the first one, you know, when Brett Favre and that team won the Super Bowl, I believe it was in 96. The game was in 96. When that Super Bowl happened, it was uh, critical. It might be 97. I have to double check my date. But regardless, it was right around there. The point is, when they won that Super Bowl, that was the first Super Bowl they had won since Super Bowl one and two in the 1960s under Bart Starr. That was the era when uh, Bart Starr and that Vince Lombardi-led team went to the two first two Super Bowls, won the first two Super Bowls, and then had come off already winning a couple of NFL championships. Through the 1960s, the Green Bay was one of the most dominant teams, and then they fell on hard times. By the 1970s, they struggled. Through the 80s, they just couldn't find anything to put it together. And into the 1990s, it wasn't looking, looking like it was going to be any different. Brett Favre showed up, and then things changed. The team became competitive. And they stayed competitive for a long time. His last NFC Championship appearance was in 2007 when they lost to the future 
Super Bowl champion that year, New York Giants, who went on to play the 18-0 New England Patriots and beat them in the Super Bowl. And then again, in 2011, it was a 15-1 Green Bay team under Aaron Rodgers that lost to that New York Giants team, which also went to play the New England Patriots and beat them again. So it's one of those things where it's just kind of always worked out that way. A couple of times, the uh, the Packers had a chance to go play the Patriots potentially and make an interesting matchup either with Favre or with Rodgers, and it just never materialized. It never came together. But the reason why I say the whole era is interesting is because the frustration, I think, for you know a lot of Green Bay fans is that you're looking at two Hall of Fame quarterbacks, two of them. And like I said, if I play out the scenario where, Brent, uh, where Aaron Rodgers gets to the Super Bowl, whether he wins or loses, it creates this weird symmetry with Favre. But if you combine the two and you look at this era, two Hall of Fame quarterbacks, two distinct eras of the Green Bay Packers. But this, this game is now in the year 2020. That means from 1992 until right now is a 28-year sustained run of a, of a two-player quarterback succession between one Hall of Fame quarterback to another. But all those years, all in total between the two, Eight NFC Championship appearances, eight in 28 years. That would, if it played out the way I said, currently it's three Super Bowl appearances between the two of them, two Super Bowl championship wins. But if they got to the Super Bowl again, that would be four Super Bowl appearances, maybe still two wins, maybe three wins. But the point is, it feels like, despite the fact that, to be honest, that doesn't sound like a bad run, 28 years. Eight NFC Championship appearances, you know, currently three wins in the NFC Championship with the possibility of four, because right now it's still in play, and then, you know, at least two Super Bowls out of it. But again, you think to yourself, how many franchises have back-to-back Hall of Fame quarterbacks, almost a 30-year run where you're consistently a contender, and then you have two Super Bowl championships to show for it? It actually really still, based on that, if you think about it in that context, it still feels kind of disappointing. And that's why that's where kind of this one falls. And I can't blame Green Bay if they don't beat San Francisco. San Francisco is a better team. But it is one of those things where there were so many years under the Mike McCarthy era with Aaron Rodgers where you just where I looked at that team and I said, why can't they just get the pieces that they needed to finish the job and actually take that next step? Because a couple of those NFC Championship games were there for the taking. Those, there were opportunities. There were teams that had the pieces in place outside of bad defenses, outside of just poor, poor, poor clock management, and some, just some bad luck. All these things came together to prevent multiple opportunities that could have happened. And now looking at this, I can't help but think, is this the last opportunity that this team and this franchise and this quarterback is going to have And it's unfortunate that it might have been a little too little too late when they finally decided to put together a decent defense. And that's kind of the biggest problem I have. It's a decent defense. It's not a great defense. And San Francisco has enough weapons to be able to torch this team just fine. And they have enough weapons to be able to cause the offense fits because they're not firing on all cylinders and there aren't that many cylinders to fire. Like I said, you can minimize Devontae Adams. You can minimize Aaron Jones under the right circumstances. You can prevent this Packer team from scoring, you know, for stretches. They might have a couple of good drives and then struggle for a couple of others. Long story short, I think it will be an interesting one. But like I said, 
it led me to a little bit more of a reflective, contemplative, thinking about a 28-year run and a 28-year span, the majority of which I've been a fan, and just thinking, wow, all that time, all that sustained you know, opportunity, and so far, not as much to show for it as you would have hoped. And maybe that'll change with this NFC Championship. But as I said, if, if it just turns out that I'm unlucky this year and that uh, betting against Green Bay, so to speak, is going to lead to them winning a couple more games, I'm happily, happily willing to do that. So that's really kind of my long, drawn-out kind of thoughts on the AFC-NFC Championship and also a little bit of uh, context, like I said, on the Green Bay history where I'm thinking about it and I'm wondering if this is going to be another little reflection, another little stain on this era where it's so much promise and so much opportunity and it just didn't materialize to nearly as much as one, one would have thought or hoped. Now, with all this said, there's one more thing I want to talk about, and that was the Houston Astros and the cheating scandal. I kind of avoided this issue, and I shouldn't say avoided. Avoided is the wrong word. I really didn't touch on it too much because I struggled with my own thoughts and feelings on it. I've listened to a lot of the commentary on it, as I usually do, because it's it's kind of interesting to get different takes and different vantage points and kind of see how they plays out. The best thing to do is not to let that sway you, per se, but listen to the argument and really kind of understand it and try to think to yourself, does this make sense? Do I agree? Do I disagree? Why do I agree? Or do, why do I disagree? How would I counter this argument? What do I think about it? Because just conducting that intellectual exercise is enough to be able to force yourself to really consider your own position. Where do you stand on it? My stance on it is that I'm of two minds on this. And I struggled with it a fair bit because I kept trying to assess if I was if I was a bit jaded with Major League Baseball and the way it's played out. Let me Let me start off with a little bit of context and then that'll kind of explain where I stand on it. Long story short, in case you just want to get to the point, the point is I'm not as bothered by the Astros cheating scandal as a lot of other people are, but let me explain why. Baseball was, and still is, far and away, without question, my favorite sport. Right from the time I was a little kid, to the time I got to play Little League Baseball, to going to hundreds of baseball games over the years. Hundreds, literally. I live near, out near Toronto, and I went to the uh, to watch games at the Sky Dome, and I'm still going to call it the Sky Dome because that's what it is to me. I don't care what they decide to call it and who owns it, and it makes no difference to me from that regard. And I watched teams that in the early 1990s slowly worked their way up. They had been they had already been building a, a contender since the mid 80s. Up until that point, they had become close and they had gotten steadily better, and they had run into these buzzsaw teams. And for whatever reason, they just were not quite able to get over the hump. But by the early 1990s, they were getting closer and closer and closer. And then they executed a gigantic trade. They traded two great franchise players in Tony Fernandez and Fred McGriff, who was a great power hitter. And to be honest, probably borderline Hall of Famer. You could make a strong case, I think, for Fred McGriff as a Hall of Famer especially in the era he was in, and given you know that he did not have the linkages to steroids and things like that that a lot of other players did. And if you take his overall statistics into context, a great, great player. And Tony Fernandez, a franchise icon and also great player. They traded those two players. And they traded them for Joe Carter, who was a great player already by that point, a RBI machine, a consistent run producer and home run hitter, and Roberto Alomar, who uh, is a Hall of Famer. So out of those four guys, you have a you basically traded a, a an all-star caliber player, another all-star caliber player for a, another all-star caliber player and a Hall of Famer. Now that's a, that's the definition of a blockbuster trade. Great players going in both directions and that acquisition or acquisitions was 
two key components and two key pieces to two world championship teams. Now, looking at it from this perspective, World Series in 92, World Series in 93. Looking at the franchise, if I really want to get down to it, if we want to be just clear about this, when I look at the Blue Jays, I don't look at it in the same way that I use the comparison about the Packers. It's not the same thing at all. With the Blue Jays, it's fun because outside of that 92-93 era, I could really tell you that I could take the 1985 era, begins in 85, with the first winning season and when they started entering into contention, and I can, if I squeeze it and I squint and I really push everything to the best of my ability, I can say that their run goes from 1985, I can say the very end of the run of relevancy was maybe 98 with the end of the Roger Clarmans era there when he won a couple of Cy Youngs. And that team was competitive-ish, but 98 was also the year the Yankees won. I think it was 116 games, and it was the same year that the Red Sox, I believe, were over 100 games. So despite the fact that that team was pretty good, they were far, far a distant third. And they were a good team. And then the team kind of just continued floundering for a long time, got tremendously talented players, Carlos Delgado, Sean Green, Shannon Stewart. Like, there were so many good players on that team. And eventually, Roy Halladay came into his own and became a Cy Young Award winner and was a great stalwart of that uh, pitching staff for years. But it was never good enough. It just never could come together. And it wasn't until 2015 and 2016 where the team again returned to the playoffs. And it took over 20 years for them to go back to the playoffs. The reason why I'm mentioning all this is that my relationship with baseball is such that I have a passion and enjoyment of it. But Major League Baseball sucks a lot of the joy and life out of it for me. Because there are a million little things. I'm not going to get into all of them. But the point is, Major League Baseball, I struggle with. But the game of baseball, I still love from my core. And I still care about it. And when we get to the playoffs, despite the fact how much Major League Baseball frustrates me, I sit in front of the TV willingly and happily, and I watch these games, I watch the World Series, I watch all of it. I'm giving you all this context because I need you to understand where I'm coming from. So in some senses, you could almost say I'm a baseball purist. With all that said, I don't care about this cheating scandal. And the reason I don't is this. As much as you may like it or not, and you're more than entitled to an opinion one way or the other on this, cheating is weaved in the fabric of the game of baseball. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not making a moral judgment on it. I'm merely stating that right from the get-go, from the beginning of baseball, there has been the culture of trying to get an edge. What is spiking a player? Well, spiking a player was that you used to have metal spikes on your cleats and you would sharpen them so that you could slide foot, you know, feet first Somebody, you know, holding the base would have to hesitate because if they knew you were spiking your, you know, you were sharpening the spikes on your, on your cleats and you slid foot first, well, do I want to stand in there and try to make this tag and then potentially have, you know, a piece of metal driven into my shin or do I kind of back off and kind of let them have the base? Stuff like that. Gaylord Perry is a great example that was given. And I actually heard the name this week, which made me laugh because I am kind of a fan of the history of baseball. Uh, I used to read quite a bit on different books on it, and I probably will get back into that because I do genuinely enjoy it. But Gaylord Perry is a guy, is a pitcher who's in the Hall of Fame, and has basically bragged to anyone who would listen about the fact that he willingly and fully, fully understandingly, used emery boards and used a spitball and used almost everything at his disposal in order to change the surface area of a baseball to be able to assist him in pitching. And he's in the Hall of Fame. He cheated, like. This is not a conjecture. This is a statement. He cheated. Baseball in the 1960s had, you know, greenies, basically amphetamines. They were available right in the dugout. 
you know, the steroid era in the 1990s and the 2000s. There's been cheating all throughout. And specifically, talking about this Astros situation, the issue that people took with it, the umbrage they took to this was not that the Houston Astros stole signs. The umbrage, because everybody concedes in baseball that stealing signs is part of the game. But the part they took issue with, and I love this, the part they took issue with was, well, they used electronic means, and that's, you know, that's not cool. Stealing signs, you know, a little shady, but, you know, within, within the spirit of the rules, or the spirit of the game, I should say. Because I don't think they put any rules saying, oh, yeah, yeah, sign steal, well, however much you want. So, but the thing is that, oh, well, if you use electronic means, well, sh- that's, that's not cool. You can't, you can't, you know, you're using like video and stuff. Like you can't use technology. I, I struggle with it because like I said, in some areas, I'm very much like a traditionalist when it comes to baseball. And there's a lot of things that Major League Baseball does that I don't like that really went away from the original spirit of the game. I think the game takes too damn long. And part of that is because they throw in the million and eight commercial breaks. And the thing is, if I go pay good money to go and physically attend a game, I don't want to watch your commercial breaks. I don't want a commercial break when I'm sitting in the stands. The game starts at seven o'clock. If I'm still there at 10 o'clock, this is stupid. Especially unless the game is like an offensive slugfest where, you know, we're running through 50 pitchers for each team and going through the full bullpens. If it's just a normal game, you know what? I should be out of there in about two hours. If I start the game at seven, I should be out of there by about nine. The game should be done. And it could be if we'd stop making 500 breaks and, and, different, uh, and different stoppages and all this and just let the game play. The pitcher goes out there, throws a couple pitches. All right, bring up the first batter. All right, next batter. All right, next batter. And keep going. But I'm getting sidetracked. The point that I'm trying to get at is that cheating is within the fabric of the game. There's a lot of things about Major League Baseball that I'm not a fan of. But the truth is, I don't really care that the Houston Astros were able to use technology. I'm not bothered by it. I don't, I don't fear technology. I make a living with technology. I can't, you know, argue that technology is bad. I understand that using technology to give you an unfair advantage is, you know, it's verboten. But at the same time, look, I take it from this perspective. Imagine what the sign stealing does for the hitter. Does it give the hitter an advantage? 100% without question, I cannot deny it and I can't change anybody's mind on it and there's no reason for me to. It is 100% an advantage versus not having a damn clue what's coming. However, and this is just an intellectual exercise, but I want you to work with it, work through it with me. Imagine for a moment if we change the games, uh, the rules of the game, and we said that going forward, henceforth, as part of the game, the pitcher must declare before each and every pitch whether they're going to throw a fastball or an off-speed pitch. Would that affect the game? 100%. For a lot of batters who are fastball hitters, simply knowing that a fastball is coming is a huge advantage. But with all that said, let me give you a few counterexamples that kind of play into it. And let's continue with the same theme that this rule change has taken effect. If I put Greg Maddox on the mound, I don't care that he tells you what pitch he's going to throw. I am confident in his control, especially at his peak and his prime. I'm confident in his ability. He can tell you it's a fastball, but where? High in the zone, low in the zone, inside, outside. He's already read your scouting report. He knows where your weak spot is. He's going to put the ball there. It doesn't matter that you know what's coming. 
he's still going to put it in a place where you're going to be very uncomfortable. And if he throws it for a strike, which is the whole point of this exercise and the whole point of my conversation, if he throws it for a strike, guess what? It's still strike one. You want to swing at it and foul off? Strike one. You don't want to swing at it? It's a strike. Strike one. If it's the next pitch, it's strike two. And if it's the next pitch, you're already walking back to the dugout. It doesn't matter that you knew what was coming. I'll give you a different example. And uh, similar concept, again, now we're bringing back to our reality where you don't declare the pitches ahead of time. The regular game, the way it is currently stated. Okay, how about this? The first ever unanimous Hall of Famer in the history of the Baseball Hall of Fame, Mariano Rivera. Now, here's the thing. He might be my countryman. I was also born in Panama. I'm not a big fan of Mariano Rivera being a first ballot Hall of Famer. I think it's BS. I think it's bogus. But that's a whole conversation and debate for another day. But I'm just saying. I don't have that much love for Mariano Rivera because he's a Yankee and I really do detest the Yankees. But at the same time, I will give him his prop and his respect. Is he a Hall of Famer? No doubt. No question. But all that said... Mariano Rivera didn't throw one pitch. It feels like he threw only one pitch, but he, he had a couple of other pitches. But there was his cutter, and his cutter was his predominant weapon of choice. There was a statistical analysis done, and I believe there was a season where when they were tracking pitches, he threw the cutter almost 85 86% of the time. So imagine that, 85 86%. Here's the thing. At that stage, aren't you basically declaring what pitch you're throwing? You literally know what he's going to throw. If you, if you know he's going to throw it 85 or 86% of the time, it is a reasonable assumption, if you're a batter in the batter's box, that he is probably going to throw the cutter. Because mathematically, if you even if you hang in there for a couple of pitches, one of them is going to be a cutter. Well, if you know what's coming, why can't you hit it? Because the whole thing is he got became a unanimous, a unanimous Hall of Famer because he has the most saves of anybody ever. And that is a high leverage situation where the batters are in tune to try to get on base or to try to get a hit or to try to score a run. And yet, knowing full well that one pitch is coming at least 80, 85% of the time. So the math is in your favor. If you're looking for cutter, you're probably going to get one unless you get out on the first pitch, but you're probably going to get a cutter. Well, if you know you're getting a cutter, why can't you hit it? Well, the reason is because it loca- is because he located it well. He put it in the right position. It had movement. The point is, he pitched. He pitched well, and it didn't matter that you knew it was coming. When I use the Greg Maddox example, I use Greg Maddox because he had the type of control and the type of knowledge and the ability to adjust to different hitters were... You could change the rules where, you, where he has to declare what he's going to do, and you still can't do anything about it. At that point, the advantage is negated. Now, for mediocre pitchers or pitchers who don't have a lot of movement on their pitches or pitchers who can't disguise their pitches well or pitchers who cannot hit their spots precisely, of course, they're going to get torched. That is the majority of pitchers in baseball, to be perfectly blunt. So I understand the, the fact is, knowing what's coming against most pitchers is going to be devastating. They're going to get crushed because they can't locate it that well. Even if they throw the pitch perfectly for them, it's still probably going to end up somewhere in the zone and you're going to be able to hammer it. But the, the elite of the elite, they could literally tell you what they're going to throw and it's not going to matter. Does it give you an advantage? Totally, 100%. I can't deny it. And like I said, there's no reason for me to do that. But is it such a big deal to me? Not really. Do I think the Astros were the only ones to do it? No. They were probably the most effective. In that sense, they're the New England Patriots of their sport because 
Yeah, they cheated. They probably came up with a bunch of ways. Now, I will say, and also kind of leading credence to my overall point, is that in order for this whole thing to work, not only did you have to figure out what pitch was coming, you know, you, by decoding the, uh, the signals and all that, the signs, you also had to be able to relay it to the batter. And that's where that whole trash can thing came into play, which is actually kind of hilarious. It's also ingenious, but it is also kind of hilarious. Imagine you have to bang a damn trash can to tell because you, because knowing the pitch based on the signal or the sign is great and all, but it's worthless unless you can relay it to the batter in some way quickly. So that's where the banging on the trash can as a signal comes into play. So that's how you're relaying the information to the pitcher. Well, reality is, at that point, the teams, even if they suspect that there's some sign stealing going on, well, then they got to switch up the signs, you know, switch up the sign every inning, you know, do whatever you have to do in order to make life more difficult. Now, this all leads me to the last point about this. Like I said, I don't really care about it that much. It doesn't bother me. I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. Uh, to me, the game, the integrity of the game has not been impinged because for God's sake, cheating is part of it. And somebody else will come up with a different way of cheating later, a different thing to do, like just, you know, kind of, I would say for a lot of those, you know, talking head shows and these people, get over yourselves. Just stop. It's what it's, it's like amateurism in the NCAA. It's not pure. It never was from the Black Sox scandal on and even before that and gambling in the game and all kinds of things. Baseball has always had kind of a shady side to it. It became the national pastime because, to be honest, it had a lot of appeal and it had a lot of regional appeal. Major League Baseball has lost a lot of that because it's not the same. It's not the same game that a lot of people would follow. But the truth is, if you do still enjoy the sport, you can still have fun watching it. You can still enjoy it for what it is. If it really bothers you that much, I totally understand. But it's one of those things. I'll still enjoy watching uh, a hitter do what they can do because I don't care if you know that the damn pitch is coming. It's still really hard to hit. Hitting a baseball is a hard thing to do, even at the best of times, even if you know what's coming. So I still always give props where somebody can manage to do it with consistency or ability. And it's one of those things where, like I said, for the Astros, it's a shame for them because they're permanently tainted by it. In that sense, people just will not see it as legitimate. They will not hold it in the same regard. And this era of Houston Astros baseball will just not be seen the same. And that's fair enough. I understand it. I can't blame anybody for that. So the last point is the argument that some folks have about, you know, vacating the championship and doing all that. I think that's kind of dumb. I don't think it's really going to do anything. Uh, the best you could do really is if you really wanted to, you could vacate it and just kind of follow the NCAA format. We're okay, fine. It's vacated. But you're not going to award it to anybody else because you can't assume. I did have a little bit of fun listening to First Take uh, this week where um, I think I think it was Max Kellerman. He basically tried to argue that, well, because they cheated and then the Yankees were playing really well against them. Well, then obviously the Yankees would have won the series. It's like, no, I don't think the Yankees necessarily would have won the series. Would it have helped? Yes. But I'm back to my point about if you know what's coming and your pitches suck, and you leave like a curveball hanging, well, the fact that I know it's an off-speed pitch, great for me, and the fact that it's a hanging curveball, well, now I'm going to obliterate this pitch. Or a fastball that you leave kind of over in the middle and you just kind of groove it in there. You're trying to hit the corner, but you actually left it in the middle of the plate. Well, I'm sorry. It's going to get crushed. The fact that they know about it is makes it even easier. But the, the reality is still the same. A well-executed pitch, even if you know what's coming, is still going to be an effective pitch against a lot of hitters. The elite of the elite will be able to take care of business no matter what. But it's the same thing with an elite of the elite of pitching. They can take care of business no matter what. 
And I think that's the overarching point that I want to make with that. Not that I'm discounting it, not that I'm downplaying it, but cheating is part of the game. It has been part of the game. It will continue to be part of the game because someone else will come up with something else. Emery boards and pine tar and all kinds of things are still part of it. The electronic mean is new. The electronic, uh, you know, element of it is new, but it's not fundamentally different. And I don't think to me, it doesn't make it that much more egregious. Teams are going to try to get an edge. Players are going to try to get an edge. There's always going to be an aspect of that, whether it's performance enhancers or, you know, the, the little rumor, which I think is kind of a joke of wearing a buzzer, you know, to tell you what pitch is coming. Why need it? Why you need a buzzer when you got a trash can? Come on, guys. Trash can is where it's at. Anyway, enough about that. So those are really the two main things I wanted to talk about. Overall, I'll say I'm crossing my fingers. I'm hoping for Green Bay. I hope they prove me wrong. I'll be happy to be wrong on that. But I think most likely to me, it will be a Kansas City Chiefs, San Francisco 49ers Super Bowl, which I think will be fun. I think it'll be, I think that would be a good game. But you could sell me. Don't shock me if Tennessee shows up or if Green Bay shows up or some combination they're in. Either way, I'm very thrilled and happy with this Final Four. I like the different storylines that it creates, and it'll ha- and we'll have time more time to talk about it later on. As always, thank you again for listening. Uh, this is kind of a, a solo pod on Necessary Nonsense podcast episode. Uh, before I go, I'll quickly just hit up a couple of uh, shameless plugs. I'm not going to do all the rest of the social medias because I really still struggle to keep them updated, but here is the part that I will do. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check out archive versions of these episodes on the Unnecessary Nonsense Podcast YouTube channel. I'm going to try to get back in there and try to do more videos where I do stuff like this and do a little breakdown, especially now that we're getting closer to the XFL. I will probably do some videos talking about that because I don't know if I want to devote an entire segment of it on the podcast. We'll see how that goes. I think that's enough for today. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Unnecessary Nonsense Podcast.